welcome back to a brand new episode of People Are Wild. My name is Kim and I am still your friendly neighborhood ER travel nurse of a host. I don't know how many times I've said that. I've always had to go back and re-record that intro, even though it's literally like 10 seconds, and I always cannot nail it on the first try, especially when I've been gone from my own podcast for quite some time. So, in that time frame, I found an old episode, and I mean an old episode. I recorded this back in early 2020, like before COVID, when we were all just so naive and living our best lives and probably looking forward to a year of a perfect vision because it was 2020. That's a horrible dad joke. But anyways, if you ever thought to yourself, hmm, I wonder what or how those people that end up doing wilderness medicine, how do they get their start? What is that all about? Or if you found yourself watching uh, something like the movie Everest or something about like disasters sort of things where people go in and rescue people, ski patrol, that sort of thing, search and rescue. If you've ever thought to yourself, well, how did they get their start? This might be the episode that answers some of those questions for you. I had an amazing opportunity to interview one of the co-authors of the book Vertical Medicine. There will be a link to it in the show notes. And I was put in touch with him through the powers of Twitter uh, by Dr. Seth Hawkins, who you can also follow on Twitter and everything will be linked in those show notes. So I had the chance to talk to Brian Simon, who is a wilderness medicine nurse and what that entails, what it means, and a little bit of insight into the world of wilderness medicine. And if you're a person that knows me in real life, follows me on Twitter, or has probably more than a 30-minute interaction with me, you know that the outside, the outdoors, is very crucial with who I am, and I find a lot of solace and comfort in nature. And wilderness medicine is this unique opportunity to be outside and to be in these more non-city environments. And when you have a basis in wilderness medicine, you end up having a different scope of practice and expertise, and you end up being able, through training, uh, being able to do different things that you wouldn't normally be able to do in a hospital setting at the bedside. And it's very unique. It involves a lot of critical thinking. And so without any further ado, Here is that interview with Brian. Everybody, I have a very special guest with me today. We're going to be talking about a world that I don't think too many people know about, especially within healthcare and definitely outside of healthcare. It's a very unique specialty and one that I have a little bit of knowledge in and a little bit of training in, but I decided to consult with somebody who has even more knowledge, expertise, and experience in it today. So joining me is Brian Simon. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself because you have a lot of accolades and a lot of initials behind your name. My name is Brian Simon. I am a registered nurse that when I work in the hospital, I work in cardiothoracic surgery uh, in the operating room. But the majority of my time is spent outside or writing or doing things outside with my uh, nursing skills. I was uh, an army officer. I was an infantry officer. And I got hurt back in uh, the early 2000s and had to find a new line of work. And so uh, I went to nursing, and since then, I've kind of carved a a career in the wilderness medicine uh, realm. 
And so I do a lot of teaching of wilderness medicine, a lot of courses, primarily medical professionals, but also lay persons. And I do quite a lot of writing. So I write for you know nursing journals. I've written for some medical journals, a couple books, uh, all on that topic. So that's kind of where my passion lies. I was, I'm able to combine what I love to do with nursing along uh, with what I love to do outside, which is climbing and just experiencing the outdoors. And so that kind of carved a little career for myself. So we're going to take a little step back and, and kind of explain a little bit what wilderness medicine is. People hear about it and they're like, well, what does that mean? I tell people, you know, I've, I have a very beginner level knowledge of it. I definitely want to know more about it. But I remember in nursing school, I took a wilderness first responder class through Knowles, the National Outdoor Leadership School. So shout out to those guys. And it was awesome. I was like, oh, I, I definitely like this aspect of uh, healthcare. But n- without going through that class, what would be the definition you would give to somebody who's like, hey, wilderness medicine, what is that? Well, the kind of the classic definition of wilderness medicine is medicine practiced in the wilderness away from you know fixed resources, whether it be medical resources or patient movement resources, basically you know, somewhere where a de- definitive care can't be given to a patient. So outside of the hospital. And, and wilderness medicine can mean many things. So in a disaster scenario, a middle of a city can be a wilderness medicine in that you know, definitive care can't be uh, given to injured persons or sick persons in that area. But generally, it's distance-based. It's you know people out in the backcountry who aren't don't have accessibility to quickly get to definitive care, re, you know, the resources that a hospital has or, you know, care providers with the materials and the resources that they need to provide quality care. Um, so that's kind of the normal definition or the definition that you hear a lot. But another way to look at it and the way I tend to try to look at it is basically, you know, wilderness medicine is you know, medical care and problem solving in circumstances where the environment has more power over us than the infrastructure or the uh, resources of civilization has over it. I think that's a better definition because I think that encompasses disaster scenarios better, which I think are becoming more and more important. If you think about the tsunami in Thailand, any kind of, you know, even the fires in Australia right now, people could be, you know, nurses, doctors could be practicing wilderness medicine just outside of major population centers, just based upon the destruction or incapacity of services that would be normal for that environment. Yeah, I'd say that I remember learning about wilderness medicine. They always said something along the lines of, if you're an hour outside of that hospital-based or ambulance care. So I was like, okay, that makes sense. But then they did broaden that. And they said, I mean, it could be, there's something going on. And what was it they were talking about? Oh, like a hurricane evacuation. You know, you can still technically be close to a hospital, but if that hospital shut down or flooded out, suddenly all the medicine and everything that you would need to do in healthcare somewhat becomes wilderness because you don't have those resources. You don't have those monitors. You don't have the access to it. And you have to start thinking on your feet and start thinking kind of quick, looking around going, well, what do I have on hand so I can help my community and I can help these people out? And that's when I was like, oh, okay. So it goes beyond, you know, 
what you would think like a 127 hours sort of situation or something to that effect to kind of actually being like, oh, this could happen. Like you said, like a natural disaster can set that off. And it is, it's like, okay, that, that I like that aspect with wilderness medicine was the thinking fast on your feet and looking around and going, what do I have? What do I need? And how many people need it? And then, okay, how do I ration that out? Or how do I problem solve what's going on? And then also take into account what is continuing to go on. Because I feel like a lot of wilderness medicine is constantly reevaluating and just constantly looking around going, okay, what's going on now? We just fix this person. I was here for five minutes. This is where my mind is, but bigger picture I have to keep in mind. And I don't, I don't know. I, I've only had to use it very sparingly when I go camping with people, but you've had to use it on a much grander scale, I imagine. Certainly, I've had my instances of, of using it in my own adventures as well as in adventures where I ran into other people who needed help. And I think just to, to go back a moment, Kim, I think you really hit, hit it on the nose when you said that it's problem solving. And I think that the key with wilderness medicine is, you know, not uh, having memorized or following uh, protocols that you might, you know, memorize knowledge or follow protocols that you might have to on your day-to-day, you know, work perhaps in the hospital or in EMS. But really, it's the most important thing when we go into the backcountry and go on these adventures is our minds and our ability to problem solve. Those are the tools that we're going to need in order to be able to analyze the situation, figure out what we have and use what we have in different ways than they were meant oftentimes improvising to help others. On top of that, being an effective communicator of what you're doing. So communicating with the injured party, whether it's in your own group or another group, those are kind of the the key ideas. Uh, You know, your your brain is your most powerful tool. So uh, that's kind of where we, what I try to do with my writing and with my training. But certainly, yeah, I've had to use it, unfortunately, many times uh, for myself, as well as others, uh, you know, both in the U.S. and overseas. So what took you down that path? I know you said you come from a West Point background, and you said that, you know, your, your life kind of, you had to problem solve is essentially real quick, it sounds like after you got your injury, and figure out where do I go from here. So how did you end up going down that route of wilderness medicine? Sure. Well, I had planned on having a career in the Army, and then I got hurt. And two things, I was very lucky in two ways. One, I was married to a a fantastic nurse. And so I already had an idea what nurses did just from her. But I also got to see whenever I was injured in the, in the hospital, what nurses were able to do on a day-to-day basis for patients. But that's kind of jumping the gun, I guess. My original exposure to wilderness medicine was when I was still in the Army. And, you know, in the early 2000s, obviously, after, you know, 9-11, there was a very high possibility of spending time in Afghanistan and then subsequently in, in Iraq. And so I found wilderness medicine while researching ways to better prepare my soldiers to take care of themselves and take care of their uh, squad mates and platoon in combat situations. And so that's kind of how I came to wilderness medicine was what, tra- what kind of training could I provide my soldiers to better prepare them to take care of themselves. So that was my first introduction. 
then I became a nurse. And like you, while I was in nursing school, I went to a wilderness first responder course that was offered by my university. Just really got it. Uh, it really, like I said, I loved being outside anyway. And so this was uh, something new and different. And I really enjoyed it from the get go. And so I started pursuing it in that fashion. You also, what do they call us? They call us woofers, the wilderness first responders. So if you ever see somebody who says, I'm a woofer, then be like, what? Uh, that's a wilderness first responder. But now I've noticed they actually, because I went to a lot of my courses for my research, particularly, I went to a lot of them with people who were EMTs and paramedics. And wilderness medicine is cool because it's constantly evolving within itself. I know that now they have courses that are more directly geared towards healthcare providers. And when I was first going through the courses, they were working on it. So I saw that just a couple years back and was like, ooh, I need to go back into wilderness medicine. Because like you, you know, I share that love and appreciation for the outdoors. But it's an interesting field within itself because it is constantly evolving to meet some needs that other people are bringing into it. And it's very evidence-based. A lot of the stuff that happens within wilderness medicine sometimes trickles down actually into the hospital, which is really cool um, to see different approaches to things. But when we're talking about wilderness medicine, people are like, okay, well, that's great. I got a little sense of what it is, but what's a scenario? We won't necessarily say a story um, that happened to you. We can say it's a scenario, but um, (laughs) to, 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 you know, preserve our HIPAA here, what's something that, kind of stands out in your mind like an experience that you've had to really you know your go-to story i guess because when somebody says about you know oh you're a nurse oh you do wilderness medicine what's one of the what's one of the things that you've seen that really stands out so unfortunately i've I've, like i said i've been involved in a number of situations probably the longest care that i had and the most involved care that i had to to perform in the middle of nowhere would be an older lady uh, in her 70s in Nepal was, was trekking on the Annapurna circuit and took a tumble off of, I wouldn't say it's a cliff, but pretty close to a cliff, and uh, had a head injury. She was status post brain surgery three years prior. So anyway, head injury, had lost consciousness. Um, I had happened to meet her and her family at a tea house the day before and my wife and I were not moving on. We were doing something else uh, in the Annapurna region and they'd moved on that night. So they ran back. They found out they knew that we were nurses. They ran back to get our help. And we ended up along with the Nepali porters who were in her group, bringing her back to a level area that actually had a tea house and a helicopter evacuation pad. You know, flat. Basically, that's a flat piece of ground, and amongst all those mountains, and uh, I took care of her and conducted neuro checks through the evening until the next morning, when the helicopter was able to to come in and land, and then got her evacuated out. So that would probably be my longest incidence of having to practice wilderness medicine, kind of a wild place. So, because you have both aspects of hospital and wilderness do you run into that issue where you want to do something in the hospital that you could easily kind of implement or do out in the back country but you're like oh wait now i'm in the hospital i can't really do it 
because that's an issue I ran into a lot because I work, you know, with more ER. So it's like, well, I know what to do in this situation, but technically I don't have to because we're in a hospital, but... Sure. Yeah. I mean, in wilderness medicine, especially, and you spoke to this earlier, the, you know, wilderness medicine courses for medical professionals. So there's a lot of different names for that. Advanced wilderness life support is the curriculum that I teach, but there's also the wilderness advanced life support taught by another uh, wilderness medicine company. And Knowles, since we spoke about them earlier, they have what's called the wilderness upgrade for medical professionals. So there, there certainly are techniques taught in those courses that would be considered out of scope of practice, I guess, in the hospital. I mean, certainly um, in my role in cardiac surgery, I don't, I'm not a first assist, so I don't suture on a regular basis, but I certainly have sutured in the backcountry as needed. You know, reducing dislocated shoulders and the like, it would not be something I would do in the hospital, but it's something that I've reduced dislocations in the backcountry. So yeah, there's there are those things. Again, it's what do you know, and are you able to to do them adequately, to do them well enough to uh, take care of those around you? And you know, certainly, hospital based care and, and wilderness based care are, are very different. My role in the hospital is extremely different than my role in the backcountry. If I'm serving as a as a medical guide or a medic for an expedition. That's that's much different. I'm operating under protocols from a medical director who's approved certain things that can be done and can't be done. So, I think that's the big thing is the scope of practice and, and who you're working under outside versus the inside backcountry versus front country. Uh, because it is, it's like, I remember going through the, the woofer class, being so excited about all these new skills that I would be able to do, but then having to kind of check myself and be like, well, wait, that's in the back country. When you're in the hospital, you can't just do that. You have to, you have to have a doctor, you know, you're a nurse in this role. You don't need to do it at the end of the day, just because you can doesn't mean you should when you don't need. So I was like, okay, but it's fun to, it, it's definitely, I feel like it's a lot, a lot of fun to learn about it because there's a lot of people I think that, get stuck within always thinking, oh, I'm a nurse. I have to work in a hospital. Or I have to be at the bedside. But it's like, no, you don't. You can take your skills outside and take the courses and learn about techniques and learn about the evidence behind things because I said it before, but a lot of wilderness medicine is most of it, I would say, say is evidence-based. So you're still working at that angle as well. It's not like somebody put something out there and this is the end all be all. By, by no means is that ever any part of wilderness medicine. If something comes around and somebody's like, hey, this worked for me in the backcountry, let's do the whole entire spiel on it, you know? And if that's something that we need to update in some ways, then they will, which is awesome. Um, that's why there's so many conferences and so many seminars and everything, symposiums even. It's really cool. I know that I've been intrigued. I've been like, I think I need to go to a conference because there are so many things that you get speakers such as yourself who just because, you know, maybe you're a person that I have friends who do river guiding and I have friends who do a lot of Southwest based expeditions and they have a background in wilderness medicine. But if you're in wilderness medicine, you might not necessarily go to Nepal, but it's fun to learn about these things that happen there because maybe you can apply something similar to what you do. And I feel like that's 
that's really a cool part about wilderness medicine. It's, and you're right, you make a couple of good points there. One, it is exciting to go to these conferences and to go to these courses. And a lot of people don't know that, certainly a lot of nurses that I've run into in the past don't know that you, know, you can get CEs at these things. And yes, it's a lot more fun way of getting your CEUs. Sure, yeah, absolutely. And, and you can get CEUs uh, at these conferences and, and therefore fulfill many of your commitments for the year for your license. But the other thing is, and the, one of the things that really intrigued me about wilderness medicine early on was the thinking outside the box, looking at problems from a different, uh, just a different way. And I really, I really enjoy that. I think it's, in, it's improved my practice in the hospital. I took a course in England and uh, a fantastic doctor that I worked with named David Hillebrand. He's a leader in the wilderness medicine, specifically the climbing medicine field. I got to work with him and learn a lot from him and uh actually probably one of the best skill that i learned from him was the ability to communicate better in um, emergency situations and i really took away a lot from him and i think that in the wilderness medicine courses uh, they do a lot of you know it's very scenario-based teaching and learning and in those scenarios i found that you know, you're taken out of your comfort zone. The patient's not in the comfort zone. Oftentimes it's raining. Sometimes you're in the snow. So all your environment's different. The situation's different. You're handicapped by not having the materials and the tools that you normally have. And so you really start thinking about problems uh, in a different way. And that's, that's a fantastic thing about wilderness medicine. Yeah, I was just thinking too about how for our practical, I guess, if you want to call it that, our scenario, I should say our big mega scenario for the first time I went through wilderness first responder is uh, we were in the snow and I was like, I'm from the desert Southwest. So (laughs) being in the snow was a total 180 on what I'm used to. And it was awesome though, because it was like, here I am with, you know, a theoretical situation where you're, you and your group kind of get lost along the way and you're trying to find your way back to your tents and somebody has a seizure what are you going to do right now because you know what you would do in the hospital but what would you do right now in this situation where you're in the snow and it's dark and and what are the things you have to do and then you bring those skills into the hospital i mean i i remember the the first things that i did after getting my through my course was that my assessment skills improved big time because it was like the ability to do a focused assessment and to, to really look at somebody from afar and see, like, you're doing an assessment on people, you're doing assessments on patients as they're walking to their room, you know, looking at subtle cues and seeing if there's something that you need to go into that room a little bit quicker than maybe you, you normally would. Or um, is this a person that can wait for a while? Because I was doing this in nursing school, trying to, you know, keep up with the nursing school stuff. And then I realized being a nurse you definitely prioritize and you're always delegating in your mind sometimes, you know, or uh, prioritizing in your mind and then delegating to others what needs to be done, you know, and and it always does come back to those ABCs at the end of the day, your airway, your breathing, your circulation. And you really don't realize that until you're really devoid of resources. And I think wilderness medicine does a really good job of making sure your assessments are focused you're looking at the big picture, but then you're really zoning in on what needs to be done in this moment right now. And I agree. I've heard that from many students that they felt the the thing that they took away from the entire program was that 
that they had better assessment skills walking away or had a better, I guess, uh, methodology for their assessment than they did before the course. The other thing that I think is important about wilderness medicine, and I would I would love to see a wilderness medicine module in every nursing school program around the country, and it's this. When you get into the hospital, and you know this, Kim, and I'm sure many of the listeners also have this, you go to work and you have your specialty. Mine's cardiothoracic surgery. So I can go in and I can assist the surgeon very, you know, I feel very comfortable doing that. But certainly my skills in handling pediatric emergencies are very poor. If they wanted to float me to an ICU on my contract, I would not be a very good ICU nurse walking into an ICU just because your skills and what you do on a day-to-day basis is very different. But what wilderness medicine does, and, and this is where it comes in to affect for the community, people, neighbors, people you run into, they know you as a nurse. They don't understand the very uh, specific requirements of different jobs in nursing. And uh, But if something bad goes wrong or they need help, they're going to turn to you. And you may not you know, have done a full assessment on a patient if you're, you know, if you're working in perhaps in an, in an office or say you're a circulating nurse in the operating room, you may not do a head-to-toe assessment of a patient on a regular basis. I don't know. I'm just kind of throwing this out there. But with wilderness medicine, you get this broad scope, uh, a broad brushstroke across lots of different environmental hazards and things that can happen outside of the hospital. And I think that a wilderness medicine course for nurses uh, in within their program would better prepare all nurses to react to any eventuality and just be a nice kind of training to be prepared for for emergencies outside when your neighbors come to you or you know say your car breaks down or you have a car accident in the middle of nowhere come up on a car accident in the middle of nowhere those are scenarios where you don't have the resources that you would normally have in your day to day job in the hospital or uh, at, at a school uh, or in a doctor's office. Yeah, I agree with that, too, because not only does wilderness medicine teach you to focus assessments and to constantly be problem solving, but a, a thing about it, too, is your response in terms of, I remember, mass casualty incidents um, being really big training. And I really feel like nowadays, and we were talking about this earlier in the beginning, um, there are more and more cases where we exist in a world where mass casualty incidents can happen and they do happen a lot more frequently. Natural disasters, chemicals. Just recently, actually, in Texas, actually, one of the contracts I had previously, uh, right near there, they had a chemical plant explosion and that caused the area to essentially be under a lockdown situation, which caused the hospitals to be aware of the fact that they might be getting a bit of an influx of people with inhalation injuries, a whole different things. But wilderness medicine teaches you about that because it, it teaches you what do you do to keep a, keep the scene safe, which is one of the big things, you know, we talk about. Um, but how many victims are there and how do you prioritize them? How do you triage them? How do you really stack it up? And I feel like that'd be so beneficial for nursing students especially to learn that or to have a little bit of that seed planted so that when they get into a specialty they can really kind of have a little bit of knowledge to draw on right yeah i mean we can name 
you know, uh, the hurricane uh, in Louisiana where New Orleans, you know, all the infrastructure in New Orleans was shut down. Even um, just uh, weeks ago, there was a bad ice storm in Pennsylvania and a real uh, large, uh, what was it, maybe 50 vehicle accident. Right. So there's a perfect scenario. Uh, you're, you're a nurse. People are going to turn to you to help. And, you know, having those wilderness medicine skills, um, improvising tourniquets, you know, you know, treating people for injuries in the snow and ice, keeping them warm, helping to prevent hypothermia in situations where vehicles are disabled. Those are all things that fall within the wilderness medicine realm and uh, would be useful to have, you know, on an airplane when they call for doctors and nurses. Are you going to stand up? Yeah, of course we're going to stand up. We're going to try to help in whatever way possible. And, you know, this is something else that I hear, um, and mainly when I'm doing uh, wilderness first responder courses, but a lot of people are driven to those courses because they run into an incident where they wish they had more knowledge and they didn't have the knowledge to do anything. And they watch someone suffer and or die because they didn't have the knowledge and skills that they needed uh, in order to affect some sort of assistance for that person. And so a lot of our courses are that I teach in the wilderness first responder realm, at least are from those people, but certainly, you know, nurses by all means, it's the reason we got into the profession is we want to help others. Right. So I think that I, that's pretty true. I've yet to meet a nurse who didn't get into the profession to help others and to do so in an environment where we're not comfortable it's hard. It's really hard. But with wilderness medicine training, I think that you can overcome a lot of that, a lot of those difficulties and uh, be better prepared and do better. And hopefully when, you know, we never encounter that, right? And hopefully we never come upon the mass casualty incident or uh, the natural disaster in where we live or, or on our trips. But uh, it's always better to be prepared um, than not. Yeah, it's that whole thing about the reason why you go to these conferences and you keep up with your recertifications is because you don't want to be in that situation where you need to implement using your skills. But if you are, it becomes that second nature sort of, I've seen this in enough scenarios. I've seen this in practices. I've seen this enough times and I've put the hands on the mannequin. I've done the, the maneuvers. I've studied it up. I feel confident in at least being able to help and stabilize instead of being like frozen in that moment. You talk about like when a situation's happening, you know, you have that response, flight or flight, fight. Um, but then there's also that other F about the freeze, fight or flight. And so you want to be one of those people that goes into it, not because, you know, you're just like careless, but because you actually have the, the skills to help people. Um, right. I think it's great that there's a lot more programs that are set up just not even that people maybe don't even realize that almost have a wilderness medicine component to it. Stop the bleed courses, uh, hands only CPR. People don't realize it, but you're actually kind of using a bit of that wilderness medicine. You know, you get that blessing to be able to be outside of immediate care and you're doing chest compressions on a person who needs it. I mean, you don't have necessarily that medical background like a nurse or a doctor or somebody else does, but you're still able to do it because you took the class. It's the same with the stop the bleed principles. You took the class, you have the training, you're actually doing wilderness medicine. So it's really cool that there's more and more bystanders who are able to learn and are taking it upon themselves to do so. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, for example, you know, so in a hospital environment, there's more of a vertical taxonomy, right? So you've got the doctors, PAs, nurse practitioners, RNs, nursing assistants, etc. Whereas in the wilderness, it's really more of a horizontal taxonomy, right? Who would you rather have taking care of you? An OBGYN doctor who this is her or his first time out in the backcountry? Or would you rather have a wilderness first responder trained climbing guy who is used to the environment, is normally operates in that mountainous environment, understands the hazards and the dangers, and understands the technical aspects needed in order to affect rescue, along with foundational first responder training? It's a good, good question. Who would be the better person to kind of take charge? Now, the MD obviously has a lot of knowledge, a lot of hospital-based knowledge, and can apply a lot of what they've learned. But the the wilderness first responder trained climbing guide is much more aware of other potential hazards, certainly um, would be better trained, I would assume, I would guess, in the effects of and or instances of high-altitude cerebral edema, high-altitude pulmonary edema, you know, signs and symptoms those kind of things because they would have seen them more often and would understand some of the medications needed in those instances. So that's just a kind of an off the cuff example, but um, just, you know, it's just much more horizontal and and kind of working together to best take care of a patient. There isn't so much that vertical taxonomy that you would see in the hospitals as is needed there. But uh, that's another very interesting aspect of wellness medicine. Um, that I find uh, really neat. It's just the collaboration in an emergency situation that happens. is uh, It's really interesting to see. Yeah, and it's very unique to that situation, which is really cool to, to be a part of and to also, you know, experience. What would you, so we'll, we'll close it out. So what what would you want people to take away from our little brief overview about wilderness medicine? The biggest thing I would like people to take away from from this podcast would be just to get online and do a little research about what wilderness medicine is and and some of the some of the programs that are out there and available what an actual course consists of and uh, you know consider taking a class you know there's weekend wilderness first aid classes and I've taught everywhere every you know people from you know newbie. 18-year-olds that have zero medical training to, to, to doctors. And they've, every person that I've gotten received feedback from has said it's been useful in some way. That's a weekend course. That's eight hours on a Saturday, maybe 16 hours <clears throat> on a Saturday, Sunday. It's useful. Uh, I think that uh, certainly we've hit on a few things that you can take away to better prepare yourself. But I think wilderness medicine will give you a different view on how to take care of patients in a, in a resource uh, constrained environment. And so I, w- I would hope that everyone would go out and see if there's a course near them and just look at what's being taught in these courses and consider that for their own professional development. Yeah. And there's a, there's a lot of them now that are more readily accessible. REI does courses. Um, you can look up through Knowles, Wilderness Medicine Institute, Wilderness Medicine Medical Society. There's a lot of different places. If you're unsure of where to start from, you know, you can always reach out to me and I could help. I'm sure, Brian, they could reach out to you. Where is a good place to find you in this 
vast worldwide web, um, where's a good place people can contact you if they have questions or just want to kind of pick your brain about wilderness medicine? Sure. Uh, well, I am a co-owner of a company called Vertical Medicine Resources. We primarily focus on training medical professionals and providing expedition medics and medical guides for overseas climbing expeditions. We really focus on the, the vertical world, but you can reach me through that uh, website, vertical-medicine.com or, um, you know, by email. Yeah, for sure. We're going to, I'm going to make sure I put all the links for, for Brian and his company, because uh, I appreciate him taking the time out of his day to, to talk and, give a little bit of information about um, wilderness medicine because people don't know a lot about it. Hopefully people know a little bit more after listening to this. And if you still have questions, by all means, reach out to myself, to Brian, and uh, hopefully we can answer them and maybe help you to get into a, a different subset of healthcare that is really interesting. It's really fun. And um, I can't sing enough praises about it. A Special thanks again goes out to Brian for taking the time to talk about what wilderness medicine is. And once again, if you are interested, he did help co-author a book called Vertical Medicine. That link again is in the show notes. I have that book personally. Um, it's a fantastic read for anybody who's ever thought about bridging together a few different interests in their life with regard to also being a healthcare provider. And Brian, if you're listening to this in 2022, thank you so much for your patience. It's like something happened over the past two years after we recorded. I can't quite put my finger on it. And real quick, well, not really, it's not going to be real quick. Two things before closing out this week's episode. Number one, I am well aware of that whole congressional thing that's going on to cap travel nurses' pay, and I spent a whole week trying to compose myself enough to write something about it, and it turns out I still had more opinions to write about. And I just so happened to remember that this episode had never been released, and it seemed like a good time to be able to really follow a little bit more closely what's going on with this whole proposal of this bill to tra to cap uh, salaries for travel nurse travel nurses travel nurse agencies specifically so there's a few things in play with that and again if you've been following me on social media on twitter because that's the only place that this actual podcast has an account um you'll see that i've been kind of laying into my own Arizona congressperson, uh, Ruben Gallego, and so far, as of this recording, I have not been blocked yet, and I anticipate that'll happen at any moment. It's not like I'm saying anything bad, I'm just saying the truth. So, Ruben Gallego, you better listen, truly. But rest assured, I will be making some sort of recording, some sort of episode dealing with that as I know a little bit more about how I want to structure it. But in the meantime, the second and final thing before closing out this week's episode is I found a story that is truly worthy, I think, of People Are Wild. And I don't know if this bleeds into maybe One Strange Thing territory. It doesn't. Go listen to that podcast. It's amazing. Laura from The Fall Line just is fantastic. Um, but if I had to maybe try and attempt to do something similar to that... 
I figured, why don't I find some stranger medical stories out there? Maybe a little bit of You Got What Stuck Where will sometimes appear into that, but if you have a podcast named People Are Wild, you probably should find some stories about people being a little bit wild. And I found one. So in 2014, a 15-year-old was admitted to the hospital because he had decided to inject himself with mercury in an attempt to develop superpowers similar to a character he liked in one of the X-Men movies. Now, he ended up not at Professor X's school for gifted youngsters. Instead, he ended up in the hospital with multiple large ulcers on his forearm. And they did not go away over the course of two months. So he seeked out medical aid. And other than the lesions on his arms, he appeared to be healthy and there wasn't really anything else of concern. So he ended up being treated by a whole team of physicians, which did involve some psychiatric providers as well. And so between all of these providers, they were able to have a more complete story out of this teenager. And it ended up being published in the Journal of Laboratory Physicians. And so I'm going to try and summarize it for you, but also probably just pull some stuff a little bit verbatim, because when you get stories like this, sometimes you just let the words speak for themselves, right? You just quote the patient is what we say when you're triaging a patient. You're just like, I'm just going to put this in quotes. Sometimes the best people to describe what's going on is the person themselves. Okay, so what ended up happening is that this teen recently had finished watching the movie X-Men Origins Wolverine. Full disclosure, me personally, I have not seen that X-Men movie. I just feel like there's so many X-Men movies. Is that a controversial hot take? There's so many X-Men movies out there, and I feel like none of the good ones have happened in like the last five years. That's probably a hot take for some of you out there. I, I honestly, I just, maybe Logan was good. I didn't have, I didn't want to watch that either. I heard it's good. I, I'll get to it. Maybe, probably not. But for me, the last X-Men movie that I did not fall asleep in the theater in real time seeing was X-Men First Class. So that was a while ago. Anyways, so this guy, this teen, had just finished watching the X-Men Origins Wolverine. And there was a character called Mercury, apparently, in this film. And so inspired by seeing the incredible portrayal of this character, this teenager took it upon himself to inject himself with mercury that was taken from a broken, I'm assuming, glass thermometer, uh, because I'm pretty sure those are really the only thermometers that really use the mercury um, for measurements. Thankfully, in this article that I will link to, um, so you can actually see the x-ray images, by the way, and you should because it's kind of a trip. So thankfully, in this article, uh, it does summarize that this character Mercury, from the comic books at least, is able to melt and solidify at will due to her Mercury-like blood. Um, but I guess they also might have thought maybe this teen was injecting themselves to gain superpowers akin to Wolverine, perhaps, because Wolverine also has like this fictional metal alloy that covers all of his bones and essentially gives him, you know, the claws between his fingers and everything. So as they looked further into what was going on with this teen, they also found out, and I kid you not, that he had allowed himself to be bitten by spiders 
in an attempt to gain power similar to, yes, the man, the myth, the legend, the guy who has so many movies at this point, like Batman and Spider-Man and Superman just have so many live action portrayal movies. Um, But yes, he was trying to gain powers like Spider-Man. Although apparently none of those spider bites had any sort of concern to them. What was most concerning as the aforementioned lesions that were on this boy's forearm. And so they ended up doing the x-rays and through those x-rays and through the tests and everything else that they had to do. So they actually had to measure out blood work and his urine to make sure that he hadn't accidentally poisoned himself into his bloodstream with mercury. It thankfully had only been localized, it seemed, to be under the skin, and it had not actually gotten into his bloodstream. And that overall probably saved his life. So the team, having this knowledge, was able to cut into these lesions. And then it says in their article, quote, the cut section revealed hemorrhagic and necrotic areas with exuding shiny droplets of mercury. So this team did a good job of actually getting mercury into his skin. He did not do a good job of becoming a mutant. So following this removal of, with necrotic, dead tissue and the mercury, the boy was able to leave the hospital and he did not have any sort of mercury absorption or poisoning or any concern for that as it had been removed. However, this is very unusual. The articles stress that with most cases of deliberate injection of mercury, it was more akin to people who were trying to have um, attempt at taking their life. And Another incidence that they reported in the article was, quote, other unusual incidences of self-injection of mercury included a 14-year-old boxer who received an injection of metallic mercury, thinking that it would strengthen his sports performance and subjects who believe that mercury injections will will improve sexual powers, uh, end quote. So, In this teenager's case, he thought he would be able to gain superpowers through these injections, um, but did not happen. And so I guess I, 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 and then that's basically the end of the article. And I'm just trying to think to myself, so when you get discharged from the hospitals, you end up with your paperwork and discharge instructions and follow-up care. I, I would love to know what they put in that discharge instruction because doctors and providers can personalize it obviously to that patient and so I wonder if somebody put in there maybe don't try and gain superpowers don't stand next to things that are glowing don't try to touch things that are glowing Um, and maybe just stick to the comic book reading and not becoming a comic book hero in real life. Uh, But I figured maybe that was a good way of ending this week's episode of People Are Wild. Let me know if you like me trying to find some of these more obscure medical cases. Um, And if you don't, well, tough cookies. I'm going to still do them because, I mean, people are injecting themselves with mercury. I didn't, I guess, well, people stick 
things into their penis all the time, like ballpoint pens. So I guess injecting yourself with mercury is not the strangest thing I've heard in the past 24 hours. And on that note, believe in the good, practice random acts of kindness, and for the love of God, if you can, please get vaccinated for COVID. Like, I'm so over this. Are you over this? Because I'm way over this. But in all truthfulness, take care of each other, look out for each other, and enjoy the rest of your week.